Welcome back to Perspective, a space to hear all sides of every story. I'm Pragya. And I'm Dory, and this is our third episode in a series called What's at Stake, where we're highlighting the perspectives of underheard individuals from all across our nation on what they felt was at stake to them in the pivotal 2020 election. I am so excited for today's episode because we're hearing from two incredible public high school teachers on the importance of public education in America and how it serves as a foundation for preserving the integrity of our democracy for generations to come especially at this key moment of equipping the new presidential administration with the stories and the statistics to build back a renewed foundation. Today we're joined with Ms. Walker and Ms. Lemons, two social studies teachers from Kentucky. Um, Ms. Walker, we'll start with you. Can you just give us an introduction, just a basic background? Hello all, I'm Ms. Walker. I have been teaching at Lafayette uh, High School for 15 years. Uh, where I have always taught government and geography. Um, and um, I graduated from the University of Kentucky from the MIC program back in the 2005, a long time ago, kids. Uh, and uh, I've been doing social studies ever since because that's where it's at. Yeah, so um, I also teach at Lafayette High School, although this is only my fifth year. Um, but like Miss Walker, I also graduated from the MIC program um, a little bit more recently in 2016. Um, but I have also um, made social studies my passion. And since I started at Lafayette, U.S. history has been my main focus. Well, last year was an extremely important election in all aspects, one of which being education with all the controversial decisions made about educators and their place in American government over the past few years. And what we want to center this whole episode around is just what was at stake for you all specifically as educators in, uh, in America regarding the election and your thoughts on education with that. Oh, so much uh, was at stake regarding education, and um, and I think that the difference being this year, you know, it, it's important for the public to, to know that um, the federal government really doesn't have jurisdiction over a lot of what goes on in our schools. Um, you know, there's even debate whether or not we should, should the Department of Education really even exist at a national level, um, given how much sort of state agency there is. Um, um, you know, regarding our state governments. Um, so with that said, um, I think what was at stake for teachers specifically, aside from the fact that uh, we are in a very unusual time regarding this pandemic and just how, to, how are we teaching in this, in this sort of space uh, and making sure that kids get the things that they need, right, to move on to higher ed and, and other things, um, was, was the conversations taking place uh, number one, regarding charter schools um, and, um, you know, the, the idea that um, maybe public schools weren't uh, necessarily doing it uh, for, for the country. Um, and um, not that charter schools are a bad thing, but are they an answer to uh, the issues that folks think that they have with public education? And then the other thing uh, would be, uh, and Ms. Lemons probably can pick up on this too, uh, specifically talking about social studies, uh, would be the pushback with regards to how teachers teach. Uh, and specifically, what does it mean to teach social studies, civic education, 
um, and our approach to uh, the narratives that we have always uh, been told from um, a textbook. And so there was a lot of uh, hot debate over pushing back on um, critical race theory or just critical theory with regards to social studies, this idea of disrupting the narrative of what had been whitewashed uh, in textbooks, you know, that were created. Textbooks, textbooks are the way in which textbooks are created, kids, and, 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 and given out. That's a very political uh, business. It's a business of education, and you really got to question that, too. And so for me, uh, Ms. Lemons, and you, you tack on, but for me, it was the idea of sort of pulling back really what are we doing in public ed and then what what's our duty right at the end of the day it doesn't matter what you all are going to do when you graduate high school i mean it does matter but what i'm saying is whatever field you all go into at the end of the day you are still a citizen of this place at many different levels and so social studies matters um regardless of what um your job title is and so so what's going on in the trenches here with us at lafayette is very very important and so to me that was that was a big deal. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I was definitely going to say that our biggest kind of issue, I think, with this election was that attack on education and this idea that I think a lot of people were kind of saying that educators weren't doing their jobs. And they were kind of saying that because we are doing our jobs and we're doing them in a way that they haven't been done before, which is to really assess the whitewashing of our history and to really have this retrospective look on our history and try to fix the downfalls that we've had up until this point. And I think there's been a lot of pushback from the past administration in regards to educators trying to really bring in all perspectives and all sides of the story and really kind of fix those issues of whitewashing in the past. So I think this election was particularly important for education because of those reasons, because there's been a pushback in recent years on intellectualism and education in general. There's this idea that education is almost um, not needed anymore or unnecessary. And like Ms. Walker said, we all need a basic level of education to have a successful, competent society that will continue on. So education is definitely a huge part of that. And I think there was a lot at stake in this last election because there's this rhetoric that education isn't as important as it really is. I think from all the people that we've heard from over this entire series, we've often come back to the notion of rhetoric and how that has such a, that plays such a big role in not even who people vote for, but just the mirror image of our nation as a whole. Um, and I want to kind of circle back to what you all were saying earlier about your own experiences, because I think that's the main reason why we wanted to have this podcast was just because we knew that you all brought very valuable experiences to the table that, obviously deserve to be heard by policymakers in power at the moment, regardless of whether that's at a local level, at a state level, or even at a national level. Ms. Walker, if you had the opportunity to talk to any key decision makers, let's just say the president, what would you tell them about your experiences in the United States as an educator that they may not already know? And then I want to hear from Ms. Lemons too. 
Um, geez. Uh, I, I think that, I think it, it's, what's hard for folks is that, is that based on um, the taxpayer, uh, based on how we have public institutions for everyone in America, it's one of the things that makes us really, really great, uh, is the fact that stakeholders, everyone is involved in some capacity, right? Everyone that's that's on this call and that's listening to this is a stakeholder when it comes to education. If you have a job and you pay taxes, you're part of the pie wedge that goes into that. It's very, very different because Ms. Limbs and I have spent a lot of money, right, getting the educations that we've got. She and I are both still doing that. We're still in school, continuing that, uh, which makes us experts in our field. However, it's very tricky when it comes to then pulling that inside the classroom and having full agency over that space, right? To be the expert, because the reality is, is that the neighbor next door who doesn't have kids in the system, he still has, right, a voice in that system. And that's a good thing, but the difference is, is a lot of times they don't know the mechanics of how this works. And so, um, and so we have to be sort of really careful about how, what lens we're coming at when we look at what's going on in the trenches in our classrooms. And so if I were to speak to any legislature right now, I've spoken to the governor about this. I've spoken to the lieutenant governor about this, who you all know, um, um, Coleman, uh, Lieutenant Governor Coleman, uh, who uh, was an educator herself for many, many years before going into this practice, which I think is also very good. I think that that the first lady uh, right now and the fact that she, um, you know, has her doctorate in education is, is key when it comes to the lenses that are going to be put on policy. But I think it would be, um, the approach would be to, to have some, to actually challenge what they actually think public education is. And then more importantly, how to make it for all. And I think that's the part that matters. You know, we need to remember that, that when we're talking about education, we're talking about people, even with you all. You know, you all may walk into our spaces, but the reality is, as well, you're in our space, you all are in very different boats. You've got different paths that have come into that space. And, and as your educator, I also come from a path. I come from an experience. Ms. Lemon's experience is completely different than mine. And she brings a different path in there. And so I think the idea of acknowledging why it is that we're doing what we're doing is very, very important. And then the path of the other kids. And so then that goes to equity, you know, the equity issues and the fact that, sorry, if we're talking about equity, we also have to talk about privilege. You can't, you can't say why is this group of folks, right, um, not receiving what they need to receive without acknowledging the folks that are in front of them. Um, and that's really, really hard to do when you've got folks who don't know what the trenches look like. And so I don't really, um, and Ms. Lemons, I've been trying to figure this out too. It, it's hard. I don't really have an answer about how to be more transparent, even though we've got open door policies, right? But I think that it's important. I would tell you know legislators that, look, we've got to step back from the business of education right now and look at education uh, with regards to to our culture, to society, and what our responsibilities are moving forward. Um, and you can't do that without without acknowledging uh, some things that are very, very wrong with what the system looks like. Yeah, I was definitely going to speak on that as well. This idea that 
there's a big disconnect in education between, you know, the policymakers at the top, what we like to call the ivory tower, um, higher ed, they've kind of got these ideals about what education looks like played out in the classroom. And it's very different from what teachers in the classroom know to be fact. And so I think I would say to policymakers, we have to find a way to close that disconnect. We have to find a way to trust our teachers. Um, I think one of the biggest issues in our country right now is that teachers are not looked at as the professionals that they are. Like Ms. Walker said, we are professionals. We know what we're doing. Most of us have spent a lot of money and a lot of time perfecting our profession and our craft, and we continue to do so. Um, it's a little known fact that teachers are required to get 24 hours of professional development every single year. So despite what people may think, we are constantly learning, we're constantly working on being better, on you know staying up to date. And I think a lot of people kind of view us as glorified babysitters. So I think one of the biggest things challenges in education right now is getting to the point where people view us as professionals. And once they do that, I think we'll be able to close those gaps in equity in all these other issues that we're facing in education, because people will actually listen to the teachers who, as Ms. Walker said, are actually in the trenches and know what's happening, what's going on, and have great solutions because they are face-to-face -face with these problems every day. Um, so that would be my message to policymakers is we have to find a way to show teachers the respect that they need and to allow them to be the professionals that they are. Yeah, snaps to that. I would say, and even circling back to how that situates itself within the past election, I would argue that on a broader scale, misinformation and distrust were often at the center of the last administration, without a doubt. Ms. Lemons, do you think there's a connection between misinformation among politicians and just citizens in general, whether that's adults that are of voting age or just students, and a connection between that and a lack of civic education or even just proper education itself? Oh, absolutely. I 100% think that's that's where it comes from. I think, um, you know, there's been this pushback, like I said, against general education, civic education. It's been labeled as being very liberal and progressive. And it's really just because we are pointing out the flaws and the mistakes that we've made in the past with our education. And people don't like to be told that we've messed up or that we're not doing it right. Um, people rarely like to look at their mistakes in the face. So I definitely do think that this generation that's clinging so hard to opinion as fact or misinformation as fact is a generation that grew up being told that you don't need to really look for the truth. You don't need to validate your sources and make sure that they're reliable. And so we are kind of fighting an uphill battle in education, trying to teach kids the proper routes to getting information and being able to really understand the validity of information. Um, but yes, I do think that there is 100% a connection between a lack of civic education and a respect for civic education and the misinformation that's been occurring as of late. Yeah, definitely. 
And I know Ms. Walker, you touched on this a little bit and so did Ms. Lemons in the past question, but over the past year, we have witnessed some of the largest movements for social justice across the nation that encapsulated the whole of 2020. And I know that Joe Biden and his new administration has continuously been promising the forward progression of these publicly divisive issues in our country. Uh, what positions do you think public schools have in encouraging those conversations of race and racism specifically in America? Well, it, it is exactly what we have to do. Um, and it's not, it's not confined to social studies. It is a culture that you, you create and you um, feed um, at your school level, uh, within your rooms, within your, within your school, through your administration. It is, it is, it has to be at your core makeup. Now, but here's the thing. There's a lot to, to piggyback misinformation and, and not knowing what you don't know. The reason um, that issues are so divisive is because a lot of folks, adults right now, turn the TV on. They don't know how to talk to one another. Um, they don't know how to question. Um, and you would think that, that that seems silly to question. But um, I know if you all have ever sat in my room, it, it is literally my job is for you to question everything that comes out of my mouth. Uh, just intentionally, even if I want to tell you a lie, just to see if you'll question me on it. Because the reality is, is that you're going to trust your teachers, right? You're going to trust your president to tell you the right thing. But when it doesn't make sense, right, based on the things you've been taught, your job has to be to question that at all times, uh, regardless of whose mouth it's coming out of. And so when we talk about racism, um, and it most certainly needs to be at the core, Dory. Uh, it needs to be something that we are rooted in because when I, when I look in my classroom, right, um, you know, we have got, we've got kids cut from every cloth, uh, from every faith, nationality, status, uh, gender. And so challenging racism though is tricky. You wanna know why? The reason we stay away from it is because this textbook over here, right? It's gonna tell you how Thanksgiving rolled out, right? It's gonna tell you how great of a guy George Washington was, dare I say Abraham Lincoln. It's gonna tell you how great these fellas were, right? And if we challenge that, right, Miss, Miss Lemons and I need to make sure that it's not just that we wanna challenge it because, you know, that we just need to know what white privilege is and race, it's not that easy because let's remember, let's go back to the stakeholder, right? Uh, who has uh, a piece of the pie. And I don't want you to forget that, okay? This is a job where, where Miss Lemons and I, we answer to the public, right? And so, so if anything to challenge racism that teachers I think can do at an everyday level is just merely to question. When you pull out facts, when you pull out sources, when we step away from these textbooks and, and Ms. Lemons and I give you legit sources and those sources are primary sources and they are in conflict of one another, right? All we wanna do is have you make a claim about these. Is race real? That's what I'm talking about my kids with right now. Is race real? Is it? Race is real, isn't it? It is real, right? But then again, it's not, is it? See, it's just like blowing your mind. But 
I couldn't have that conversation with a bunch of 40-year-olds, even though I've got you two documents, right? One says race is not real. One says race is real. And I tell you to take a stance on it. Well, the reality is this race is real. Pragya, you are you and I, according to according to how race was created, you and I are not the same race. But the reality is, is there also isn't race isn't real. But because because white folks back in the day created race as a power construct, it is real. And so because it's real, it's put you behind me in some capacity, or at least here in America, you're behind me. And the thing about it is that takes a lot of willful um, education as adults to go looking for that. And it's a lot easier to Miss Lemon's point. It's a lot easier just to say, I'll just listen to what the, the TV is telling me or my president's telling me, and I don't know what misinformation is. So I'm just going to take it for what it is um, and not learn about it. And also too, white folks don't like to be called racist, right? That word in itself, what racism is and what, what it means to be racist, it's hard. It's raw. And, and, and so I think it could start with questioning. You can't come in as an educator and just, and then, and just walk out. Miss Lemons and I can't walk in and say, today we're going to learn about white privilege, kids. Nope. We're going to end up on the evening news if we do that. But we can teach ways to question uh, sources, which is not in that textbook, which is why we've got to step away from that textbook. Sorry, Miss Lemons, I took a little too long. Oh, you're fine. I was just going to piggyback off of that and say that there's nothing wrong with civil discourse. And actually in a democracy, you have to have civil discourse. And I think the problem is that we're not teaching that because educators have been put in this box, like Ms. Walker said, where we answer to the stakeholders, the public, and the public doesn't like to have those conversations because having those conversations has to admit that there's a problem in the first place. And then you have to accept the long road of hard, hard work that's ahead of you to fix all the mistakes and all the problems. So people would rather ignore it or or claim it doesn't exist, um, fake news, misinformation, because that's easier to accept. It's easier. It doesn't require any work. Um, but I think for educators, our big task is teaching students how to have productive civil discourse. And a lot of that starts with questioning, like Miss Walker said. We're not here to push our agendas. We're not here to, you know, push that stuff down your throat. We're here to have you start to ask those questions yourself and come to your own conclusions by having healthy civil discourse. And that's honestly, I think, what we're really trying to teach in our classes so that when you become adults, you can turn on the TV and listen to what's being said to you and have healthy, productive conversations about whether or not those are facts or their opinions or it's fake news or real news and those conversations will be much more productive if you've actually learned how to have those conversations early on which i think is the problem in our country right now yeah and circling back to i guess once again situating that in not even just the 2020 election but i would just say in politics in general, especially since the passage of No Child Left Behind that was signed under Bush. 
statistically, the class time devoted to social studies or civic education broadly has declined really steeply. Um, most state assessments don't even cover civics material anymore. And in too many cases, if it isn't tested, it isn't taught. Um, as a student, that's alarming. And it often feels like instruction on the integrity and the meaning of democracy is missing, or at least it's not as widely mandated unless you have either a particularly passionate teacher like you guys, or you're in an advanced or AP class that's built on the foundation of really instilling the essence of democracy and how it's evolved in curriculum. Um, for historical context though, so US high schools commonly refer offered um, three classes to prepare students for their roles as citizens, one being government, another being civics, which concerned the rights and responsibilities of citizens. And um, the last one was problems of democracy, which included discussions of policy issues and current events. But today that all looks a lot different. I think schools are more likely to offer just a single course, if at all. Um, and this was an article that I had read in the Atlantic that felt really compelling to me. So already some experts have noted a conspicuous link between the decline of civic education and young adults' dismal voting rates. Um, civic knowledge is in an alarming state at the moment, I would argue. Three quarters of Americans can't identify the three branches of government. Public opinion polls, meanwhile, show a new tolerance for authoritarianism and rising levels of anti-democratic and illiberal thinking. Um, and these views are found all over the ideological map. So I would say that civic education has really fallen out of favor, partly as a result of the changing political sentiment that we're all too familiar with at the moment. I say all of this just to put the whole discussion into perspective, but also because I'm curious to know what you all think about this. Ms. Walker, does this very apparent gray area in civics education feel presently relevant in your own classroom or just school broadly today or even public education itself? Yeah, pardon, yeah, I think it's I think it's it's all around. But I also think and I, I kind of want to be I want to be clear to this too. So if if I think about like the geography of civics education, right, then because the state, because they have jurisdiction over what their what public education potentially could look like in their state, then what then that's going to dictate is sort of the politics of what's being offered. So like, for, for example, in the state of Kentucky, uh, the state does not dictate to you what courses that you have to teach in high school. It merely tells you this. It says, here are the state standards for high school. And kids in high school, every high school, have to take three social studies classes. They don't tell you what those social studies classes have to be but they tell you this, at the end of their junior year, they're gonna take a test and that test is gonna be over all of those standards. So whatever classes you offer, you have to structure them in such a way that they meet all of those standards, right? In order to graduate from high school. That's every kid in the state of Kentucky. So technically, Prague, yeah, they don't even have to have a civics class, period. No one is dictating a civics class. No one is dictating a US history class. They're sure as the world they're not taking a geography class. Um, and so, so that goes back to the politics of what social studies is in the first place. And it's hard to quantify social studies. It's not like reading. It's not like where you can get a measure. Reading is reading. Math is math. You can quantify that on a cute little bubble sheet uh, on an ACT. 
you you start making social studies muddy and messy, how do you test that, right? How do I test what it looks like that you have the knowledge that you need to understand the world? Well, that's that's not going to get the business of education the way in which we want, so it doesn't create the demand for social studies that we need. Also, we try to compare ourselves to other cultures like Japan and the Swedens of the world, right, who have completely different cultural paths than we do uh, with regards to science and, and math readiness and all these other different types of things, um, which is also the push, globally speaking, for those disciplines. Um, but also, too, Prakya and, and Adori, you, you have to want to understand how things are going to go, right? We all, you know, I, I see a lot of very nationalistic behavior going on, like, woohoo, I'm really proud to be an American and yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, um, could the majority of those folks even pass the naturalization test, Ms. Lemons, which is also not social studies, but probably you brought up a good point about the three branches of government. We got folks, right, all riled up, right, wanting to, um, wanting to, uh, you know, protect their, their, their legitimate rights that they have as Americans, but they can't tell you one thing about how, um, how the vice president can alter the electoral college vote in any way, shape, or form. Um, and, and so that in itself, um, that starts somewhere. And I think it really starts at the kitchen table. I think it really, sh it starts with the fact that maybe the majority of these kids at high school, you all can't vote, but you all can still go out and make change in some capacity and put pressure on legislators. But if you don't know who those things are, or you actually think that those things are not in your backyard, meaning they have nothing to do with you, then you're not going to go after it. And so I think it's a cultural change for all of us. And even if you don't have a civics class, you've got to, you've got to, got to want to know more. You got to, if you don't know about it, you got to want to know about it. I got to start, I got to stop talking. No, you're good. That was, that was perfect. And I think that like also identifies like the holistic nature of this. Like there's no one you know, broad stroke policy that's ever going to fix what we see going on in our nation today. And I totally agree with you. It does start at the kitchen table, getting rid of the discomfort and talking about issues like this. If we're not going to be able to embed that into our curriculum, then we better be having these conversations in our own houses. And I think that's exactly right. Miss Lemons, I had something for you. So some folks on the left side of this whole argument, and I want to put this to perspective because I would argue that education is quite a political matter, at least at this point. Um, some folks at on the left side of this argument have come to see instruction in American values such as freedom of speech and religion um, and the idea of a cultural melting pot as an integral part of education. Some people view it as reactionary, but some conservatives, meanwhile, on the other side, have complained of a progressive bias in civic education. How do we go about changing what presently exists and getting rid of this constant friction between the two that's been impeding our ability to move forward? That's a big question and a very complex one to answer because like you said, there is no one kind of broad stroke, one broad solution. And I think it kind of goes back to that idea of learning how to have civic discourse and knowing that it's okay to disagree. It's okay to have different opinions, different ideals, 
But at the end of the day, we all have to settle on facts and we all have to kind of look at the validity of the things that we're pulling from and really be able to listen to what other people have to say before we react to it. I think that's a huge step in the right direction. But also I think we need to kind of go back to the basics and understand why there's this pushback. Why does the right say that these things are liberal? And why does the left say that the right is acting that way? You know, this didn't appear out of nowhere. Where did this divide start? And I think learning about where the root of these problems come from is a big step in moving forward from the problems, but also understanding that it's okay to disagree. Um, I think people often forget that a part of a democracy is the idea that not everybody does agree and that you do have majorities and minorities, and that is a positive thing. You want to have as many voices at the table as possible. You want to have as many perspectives available and, and heard as possible. And I think in America, there's been this big push recently to kind of silence any voice that isn't like yours or any voice that doesn't speak to what you consider the majority. And I think that is one of our biggest problems in this country is not allowing there to be a seat at the table for every different voice and every different perspective. And so I think a big start would be getting there first. Um, I've said it for many years that I think that our two-party system is the root of many of our issues. This idea that you have to place yourself on one extreme side or the other, you know, that's never going to fare well in a democracy because like I said, you need as many perspectives as possible. Um, so I think that is a huge, huge root of the problem there. Well, thank you all so much. Loved having this conversation. And that's all the questions we have for you. But yeah, this is a great episode. So glad to have had you all on. Well, thank you so much for inviting us on. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys about this stuff today. So thank you. Yeah, likewise, you all are you all are doing good work. So we're proud of you. Thank you all. See you guys. That's all for this episode of Perspective. We have episodes released every Monday, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at perspective.pd to hear about upcoming episodes, roundtable participants, and special guests. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and we hope to see you back next week. Bye.